Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 109. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on March 16th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. For those of you listening in close to real time, on April 11th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the evening. We've got some interest in doing a meetup at some as-yet-unspecified venue, probably a bar or brewery. If you'd like to join a few of us, send me a note at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or a message through the contact page on the website or direct message on Twitter. As we get closer, I'll find some place probably fairly convenient to DuPont Circle, and I'll let people know the details via Twitter, the Facebook page for the podcast, and the website. As I think you all know, this is not a professional operation, so I don't have anybody to organize this for me. Oh, well, you get what you pay for. It's the summer of 1634. When last we were with Roger Williams... Helpfully, just the last episode, he was keeping his head down and paddling around Massachusetts, learning the local indigenous languages and culture. A bit outside the Puritan orbit, the English were establishing their first settlement in India, the beginnings of an incursion there that would last for more than 300 years. A young Frenchman named Jean Nicolet was exploring the Upper Great Lakes, and would set foot in Wisconsin this summer, becoming the first European to have done so. We will return to him. Unless, of course, I change my mind. Across the Atlantic, the Royalist Anglicans had escalated their persecution of English Puritans and had begun to turn their gaze to Massachusetts. This would accelerate the emigration of Puritans to New England and elsewhere, including a prosperous fabric merchant named William Hutchinson and his wife, Anne. We will certainly return to them, and particularly her. Closer to Massachusetts, the world was getting more complicated in a hurry. The Dutch of New Netherland, already far outnumbered by the English, had expanded to the Connecticut River, which they called the Fresh River. So had the separatists from Plymouth. John Winthrop protested the incursion of the Dutch, but not that of the pilgrims. His issue, in this case, was nationalistic, not religious. The year before, a series of squabbles between the Dutch, the English, and the Pequots, then the most powerful tribe in Connecticut, would lead to Indians killing an Englishman named John Stone, who richly deserved it from their point of view. We covered this in Fathoms of Wampum a few weeks back. Unfortunately for the Pequots, a lethal epidemic would sweep through their villages in the winter of 1633 and 34, reducing their population from perhaps 16,000 to as few as 3,000. Then, in the summer of 1634, the Reverend Thomas Hooker and a group of freemen, that's to say, voting church members, requested permission to leave Greater Boston and head into the wilderness— They proposed to settle on the banks of the Connecticut River, too. They were seeking permission because, well, they were part of the Bay Colony by covenant and could not just break it unilaterally. That would not be cool. 
They got their permission and would thereafter further upset the balance of power in southern New England. In Salem, a letter from Thomas Morton, the Lord of Misrule, then plotting his revenge against the Puritans of the Bay Colony, would arrive at the house of one of his old friends. Morton bragged that he was preparing to argue for the revocation of the Bay Colony's charter and that a governor representing the crown and now Archbishop Laud would be sent over to impose his will on the Massachusetts Puritans. Morton's correspondent turned the letter over to John Winthrop, even though the very hardcore Thomas Dudley was now governor. At the next meeting of the general court, the Bay Colony leadership resolved to resist any effort to grab the charter or impose a governor. They accelerated their preparations for war, which would lead to another seemingly obscure but momentous theological squabble. And when I say squabble, I say it with the greatest respect for the quality of the arguments made. I wouldn't want to debate a Puritan, at least not on his home field. We shall return to that, too. Finally, Samuel Skelton, the minister of the Salem Church and the man to whom Roger Williams deferred, died on August 2nd. Williams, by default, would become the spiritual leader of Salem, even if an unpaid one. His profile would remain low no longer. Now, my listeners, at least, know that events do not appear to those living through them, as they do to those who consider those events as history. No need to repeat the many reasons for this right now. You've heard me declaim on that topic before, and I'll no doubt do again. So reflect on all of this, as it must have appeared to the general court. Most of the big moments of 1633 and 1634, the plague of the Pequots, the new settlements on the Fresh River, the death of Skelton, the arrival of the Hutchinsons, would not have seemed particularly important in the moment. The general court would have focused almost entirely on the threat from the Anglican royalists in England and the preparations of the colonial defenses. And if war were coming, it would be very important for God to be on their side. And if that sounds snarky coming from a 21st century secular humanist, as I am, it's not intended to be. The past is quite famously another country. You have to respect it when you go there, or you won't understand it. Anyway, with the dogs of war beginning to bark, the general court declared a day of public humiliation. The citizens of the bay were to search their souls and repent for anything that might have offended the Lord. This was fundamental to the defense of the colony, for if the community had broken its covenant with God, the outcome of war, if it came, would reflect God's disfavor. Naturally, Roger Williams had a big problem with it. I've struggled with describing Williams to myself, much less to you guys. So before we jump into the controversy, I'm going to take another shot at capturing him. None of this will be new to attentive listeners of even recent vintage, but it still might be useful to roll it all up. Roger Williams was a kind, loving, pious man with a charismatic personality. Almost everybody liked him, at least until he started objecting to their closely held beliefs, and many liked him notwithstanding that. He was also very religious and extremely smart, especially in a philosophical or analytical sense. 
Because of the influence of his great mentors, Sir Edward Coke and Sir Francis Bacon, Williams understood the importance of actual evidence in the making of arguments. Williams added to that the ability to see the world as it was, not as he imagined it to be. He had a capacity to discard his preconceived notions when his eyes and his brain told him they were incorrect. So, for example, when he saw that the Indians were actually using and indeed cultivating the forest, he realized that the legal basis for English claims to the land of New England was based upon inaccurate facts. Williams had tremendous intellectual courage, insofar as he would follow his reasoning wherever it led, no matter how inconvenient, uncomfortable, or dangerous the destination. He also had moral courage, insofar as he would argue his corner to the last, almost no matter the personal cost. He would try to stand good terms with people he respected, but he would be willing to alienate almost anybody in the service of his deepest convictions. I'm tempted to declare Williams the most base Puritan ever. Unless, of course, I'm using that word wrong. I'm probably too old to say it right. Finally, Williams was robust, matching his spiritual commitment with physical strength. No bully on the beach was going to kick sand in his face. That no doubt contributed to his confidence in philosophical and theological matters, and it gave him a long life with which to influence his world. Roger Williams would live almost 80 years under extremely demanding circumstances with repeated exposure to New England winters, the filth of ships at sea, and the pestilence of 17th century London. Few of us would live so long under such circumstances, even if we were fully vaccinated in the real sense of that phrase. So what exactly was the problem that Williams had with the day of public humiliation, the day of searching of souls for possible offenses against God, declared by the general court in 1634? Well, Williams believed that general court and the church in Boston was the source of manifest offenses against God, elevated by the death of the Reverend Skelton to the de facto leadership of the Salem Church, Williams spoke out. He had, he later wrote, identified 11 public sins for which it pleased God to inflict and further threaten public calamities. They included his objection to the government enforcement of the first four of the Ten Commandments, because that amounted to state contamination of a worshiper's personal relationship with God and the covenant of grace. He objected to government-compelled church attendance and the loyalty oaths on the same grounds. Finally, he made public his heretofore private argument that the king had no right to grant the lands issued by the Indians. Williams was effectively arguing that only wholesale reform of the church and government of Massachusetts could prevent the wrath of God. Williams was not entirely alone in arguing that the Bay Colony's government was a source of public sins for which God might visit his displeasure. John Eliot, speaking at the Roxbury Church, denounced public failings of the Bay government. John Cotton, who would come to despise Williams, and Thomas Hooker paid Eliot a visit to help Eliot understand his error. 
and on the next Sunday, Elliot issued a public apology. Williams, however, would not bend this time. Now to John Barry's account, quote, Williams had greater conviction than Elliot. Earlier, he had offered his writings to be burned. He would make no such offer now, and he would make no apology. Pushed inexorably by his logic, Williams argued that the Massachusetts Charter was irrevocably besmirched. They had to return it to England and get a new one. He even called for a letter of reprimand to be sent directly to Charles I, King of England. Winthrop and his colleagues believed, I would not forget, that he had, quote, broken his promise to us in teaching publicly against the king's patent and our great sin in claiming right thereby to this country. Williams was, the magistrates felt, showing contempt for their authority. They were correct. Back to me. There's a reason why the old Apple computer ad I mentioned a few episodes back honors the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers. We Americans in particular love the principal dissenter, memorialized in Norman Rockwell's freedom of speech painting, 12 Angry Men, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Inherit the Wind, and roughly a trillion more American stories. Roger Williams was the first such person who survives in our national memory long before we mythologize such people. And, as we shall see as we work through his story, however much we admire and romanticize such figures, they can also be a pain in the arse. Now, William's position was far from unpopular. In particular, he had a big following in Salem, which was a hotbed of precisely logical Puritanism, which itself had its adherents throughout the Bay. The problem was, precisely logical Puritanism which inevitably marched towards separatism, was extremely inconvenient for the Bay Colony's leaders, whose job was to defend the Bay Colony and its charter from civil and religious authorities in England. Seemingly small symbolic gestures took on enormous significance. Now back to John Barry, quote, In obedience to the general court, each town's trained band had begun drilling hard. The band seethed with the ferocity of continental war. Breastplates, helmets with knife-like edges, pikes, swords, and muskets. Each band comprised a brutal killing force. John Endicott commanded the Salem Band as it drilled for war against their own king, a war they would fight on God's side against that king. He looked up at the king's banner under which his men and all trained bands drilled. Fixed on the banner was a cross, the Red Cross of St. George, a symbol suggested to an earlier English king by the Pope. Purins believed that any cross violated the second commandment to make no graven images of God. They considered it superstition and idol worship. For this reason, Puritan extremists had smashed stained glass windows and destroyed crucifixes in English cathedrals. Here in New England, churches were simple buildings, rectangles or squares without a nave, without ornamentation, with only a podium for the minister to speak from, certainly without a cross as adornment. 
Winthrop had gone so far as to object to the name of a place called Hughes Cross, where people forded a stream, renaming it Hughes Folly. To train under such a symbol as the Cross of St. George, a cross linked to a pope, was anathema. At best, it betrayed all that Puritans stood for. At worst, it represented a grievous offense to God. In a sudden burst of fury or zealotry or inspiration, Endicott slashed at the flag with his sword, slicing the cross out of it. Back to me, Endicott's excision of the cross was very popular across the bay. Of those who opposed it, most did so on practical grounds. They were worried that when word got back to England, as it inevitably would, the authorities might be provoked into military intervention. So was the general court. At its meeting of November 27, 1634, it considered both Endicott's offense against the cross and complaints against Roger Williams. The movers and shakers were divided in their view of Crossgate. Cotton supported the destruction of the cross, and Hooker opposed it. So for the moment, Endicott was not censured, and no action was taken against Williams other than to dispatch learned clergy to persuade him of his errors. That was not, however, the end of it. Over the course of the next few months, various ministers of the Bay met with Williams, all in an attempt to get him to admit his error and rejoin the consensus. Williams may well have enjoyed these encounters. He had invested a great deal in his own arguments and might well have looked forward to asserting them. The record from this period shows that he backed off on pushing some of his points, principally around the ownership of Indian lands. But at the same time, the general court passed new policies to which Williams also objected, including the requirement of an oath of fidelity for all citizens. His arguments will not surprise the most long-standing and attentive listeners. Only people in covenant of grace with God could take an oath before him. Unregenerate citizens who swore such an oath under orders from the state were pretty obviously taking the Lord's name in vain, a straight-up sin. Worse, the oath before God was to perform a worldly act. In effect, it connected the inherently corrupt and sinful government on earth with the holy and flawless kingdom of heaven. To do so not only defiled God and heaven, it reeked of human hubris and pride, also sinful. Williams began to preach against the required oath of fidelity, and people began to see his point. The patience of the magistrates was wearing thin. In the spring of 1635, events accelerated. Not relevant to our story, but still interesting. On April 23rd, the Boston Latin School would be founded. It's the oldest still operating school in today's United States. More relevantly, Roger Williams was called in to debate his objections in the hope that he would see the light. The general court also issued a decision on Endicott's cross-cutting case. It found against Endicott, but not because he'd cut out the cross of St. George, which had turned out to be so popular. Rather, the magistrates held that he had exceeded his authority in so doing. He should have first sought permission. He would be barred from office for a year and no longer represent Salem. 
This would have the politically useful collateral result of depriving Roger Williams of his one real ally on the general court. The colony also received the bad news that spring that Sir Ferdinando Gorgias and Thomas Morton were bringing their cases before the king's bench, essentially suing for the revocation of the Bay Colony's charter. Gorgias was also building a, quote, great ship to carry himself and an armed force to Boston to seize the charter. Then in June, a miracle. Word arrived that Gorgias' warship had broken apart as it was launched. This almost impossibly good luck appeared to the pious people of Massachusetts that God had intervened on their behalf, which to them meant they were serving him and complying with his covenant as he wished. To the magistrates on the general court, this meant, among other things, that they were right and Williams was wrong. Notwithstanding that, the Salem Church formally installed Williams as his teacher again without consulting the court. At the next session, on July 8, 1635, the general court again demanded that Roger Williams appear to account for himself, this time to answer specific charges. Both at court and elsewhere, Williams held his own in the substantive debate. By the surviving accounts, his relentless logic was difficult to refute, or at least none on the court had the capacity to do so. But the politics of the matter were important. The court could not possibly accept Williams' various arguments, no matter how well-reasoned, because to do so would set fire to the Bay Colony's legitimacy. How could it be that the king had no authority to grant the charter on which they depended? Or they could not insist on church attendance, loyalties, and other widely accepted practices. Williams then overplayed his hand, He and Samuel Sharp, one of the Salem Church's elders, sent letters to the other churches in the Bay, arguing that they should admonish their own magistrates for having sinned in their case against Williams. He was, in effect, bringing his case directly to the people, essentially waging a public relations war against the prosecution. Unfortunately, Williams didn't have Twitter, and the ministers at the churches who received his letters did not retweet them to their congregations. There was no grassroots rebellion in support of Williams, but the magistrates went, at least in some cases, from annoyed with and exhausted by Williams to enraged. On September 3, 1635, now a year after Williams had first gone public with his criticisms, the general court met again. This time it opened up the proverbial can of whoop-ass, using every lever at its disposal to put pressure on Williams— It excluded Salem's deputies from participating in the proceedings. When John Endicott protested, the court tossed him into jail for contempt of court. The court went after collateral figures like Samuel Sharp, the elder who'd co-signed the letters sent to the other churches. And perhaps most importantly, it held Salem's economic interests hostage. The town had requested to annex some adjoining land, and the general court said it would only permit it If the Freeman of Salem renounced Williams, support for Williams began to crack and it broke apart when he refused to offer any compromise that might have resolved the crisis. By the time the next session of the court loomed, Williams stood alone. Amazingly enough, 
Even now, the court gave Williams the opportunity to recant and offered him further conference or disputation with learned clergy who could, presumably, show him his error. Williams declined. Still hoping to avoid sentencing Williams, perhaps a measure of his personal appeal and popularity, the court offered to delay the proceedings for another month. Williams again declined. It was now or never. In Barry's words, guilt or innocence had never been at issue. The only question was whether Williams would recant, apologize for offending the magistrates and the clergy, and conform. He had not and would not. Out of moves, the general court pronounced its sentence at some point late in the fall of 1635, that the said Mr. Williams shall depart out of this jurisdiction within six weeks. Now to Barry, quote, The sentence stunned Williams. Indeed, for the rest of his life, he seemed never quite able to accept it, never quite to believe it could have happened. He understood how a church might expel him, might excommunicate him, but he could not then grasp, could never grasp, how he could be banned from civil society. In his view, he had done nothing except exercise the rights held by all Englishmen. Coke himself had extended the full protection of English law to the American colonies in a 1608 ruling. There was no doubt about the gravity of the sentence. Banishment had certainly been imposed before, but the colony had not issued such a sentence in three years, and none of those expelled earlier had been such respected contributors to the community as Williams. The only significant accusation was the relationship between the state and the church, as embodied in the states enforcing those of the Ten Commandments which define human responsibility to God, and Williams' right to express an opinion on that relationship. He had committed no act of rebellion, nor even of disloyalty. He had only expressed his beliefs. That was the only real accusation. The others were dross, although Williams was also charged with opposing the magistrate's use of the loyalty oath. He'd convinced so many in the plantation of the correctness of his view that the magistrates had ceased imposing it. Banishing all who shared his view on the oath would have banished half the plantation. Nor could they expel him for his position on the land rights. He had acceded to their demand of silence on that. But on the question of the state imposing the views of the Puritan church, on this question, pushed by Cotton and others, it could and would act. The sentence spoke to much more than William's personal circumstances. It defined the course of settlement in New England. More importantly, it opened a fissure in America, a fault line which would divide America all the way to the present. That fissure opened over the question of the role of government in religion, and of the reverse, the role of religion in the government. Back to me. Williams returned to Salem, where he still had many friends, to prepare for his banishment. He could not return to England, not with Archbishop Laud in charge. Judging by the sentences meted out to other less inflammatory dissidents, Williams could expect to be whipped, to have his ears cut off, to have his tongue bored, and then to be imprisoned for life, a life that would be much shortened by the arduous conditions of the prison. He might have gone to Plymouth, but he'd already left there under a cloud, and in any case, it would be 
unlikely that Plymouth would welcome somebody banished by the far more populous and powerful Bay Colony. Instead, he considered the condition of true freedom. During this period, in the weeks after his sentencing, the Williamses brought a new child into the world, a daughter whom they named Freeborn. Perhaps he would go to the wilderness and live under the permission and protection of the Indians whom he had befriended and whose language he had learned. He began to think about heading to Narragansett Bay. Winter was coming, and then Williams got very sick. Even now, the magistrates cut him slack and deferred his banishment to the spring so he would not have to travel through the New England winter while sick. The only condition was that he not publicly preach his doctrines. This he would not do anyway because he no longer had a position in the Salem church. He did, however, have friends over, and conversations were had, conversations about settling to the south with the Indians. Word of these friendly conversations got back to some of the anti-Williams hawks on the general court, and it met to consider what to do. All were concerned that Williams would start a new settlement in New England, which would reinfect Massachusetts with dangerous ideas. Some wanted to execute him, but his popularity meant there was a great risk that his execution could backfire. It was decided that he would be forcibly expelled to England, even if the ultimate outcome would probably be the same, the magistrates would have plausible deniability. The general court issued a warrant to Williams to come to Boston to be shipped back to England. Still, Williams had allies. Two physicians testified that he was too sick to travel even to Boston, much less across the Atlantic. A group of Salem residents pleaded to the governor's council. They were ignored. Then the governor, John Haynes, who had succeeded Thomas Dudley, ordered soldiers under Captain John Underhill to sail to Salem in a pinnace and arrest Williams. Now back to Barry for the exciting moment. Quote, One week earlier, the same governor's council had reprimanded John Winthrop for his too much leniency to disaffected souls. Nonetheless, now he did something he never admitted publicly. He sent warning to Williams that he was about to be arrested and sent to England. John Underhill was a professional soldier, a man not to be trifled with, and he would soon show himself to be a killing machine. He took 14 men with him. Then in the dead heart of winter, a great blizzard came out of the northeast. That would be a nor'easter with a heavy gale. The pinnace hove to in Boston Harbor, waiting out the storm. For four days, Underhill waited. It was a great storm, leaving snowdrifts as deep as a man. It was likely with a great but secret pleasure that Winthrop reported, when he came to his house, they found he had been gone three days before, but whither they could not learn. Back to me. Roger Williams, sick and alone, had left his home and family in Salem and ventured into the New England woods in the dead of winter, struggling through the snow from a four-day storm. That story, however, should come at the beginning of an episode rather than here at the end. We need to do it justice. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. 
Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them up. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on that contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Also, let me know if you can be in Washington on the evening of April 11th, 2023. And last but not least, please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter or on the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>